Does that imply that every time you take a position in the markets, all the key people have agreed on that position? No. Our decision-making process is to determine the criteria by which we make decisions in the market. Those criteria, I call them principles, are systematized. These principles determine what we do under different circumstances. In other words, we make decisions about the criteria we use to make decisions. We don't make decisions about individual positions. For any trading strategy, we can look back at when it won, when it lost, and under what circumstances. Each strategy develops a track record that we deeply understand and then combine in a portfolio of diversified strategies. If a strategy is not performing in real time as expected, we can reevaluate it, and if we agree it is desirable, we might modify our systems. We've been doing this for 36 years. Over the years, we develop new understandings, which we continually add to our existing understandings. You've had only two drawdowns worse than 12% in 20 years, with the worst being 20%. How have you managed to keep your drawdowns so controlled using a directional strategy? There are two parts to the answer. First, as we discussed earlier, we balance risk across multiple independent drivers. We avoid having too much of the portfolio concentrated in any single driver. Second, we have stress-tested our strategies through multiple time frames and multiple scenarios. I think many people experience drawdowns that are much larger than they expected because they never really understood how their strategy would have worked in different environments. There are managers who have been in the business for five years and think, I have a great track record, this approach really works. But they really don't have the perspective of how their strategy would have performed in different circumstances. Strategies that are based on a manager's recent experience will work until they inevitably don't work. In contrast, we test our criteria to make sure they are timeless and universal. Timeless means that we look at a strategy during all different times, and universal means that we look at how a strategy worked in all different countries. There is no reason why a strategy's effectiveness would change in different time periods or when you go from country to country. This broad analysis through time and geography gives us a unique perspective relative to most other managers. For example, to understand the current U.S. zero interest rate, deleveraging environment, we need to understand what happened a long time ago, such as the 1930s and in other countries such as Japan and in the post-bubble era. Deleveragings are very different from recessions. Aside from the ongoing deleveraging, there are no other deleveragings in the U.S. post-World War II period. Are there risk limits in terms of individual positions? There are limits in terms of position size, but not in terms of price. We don't use stops. We trade approximately 150 different markets, where I am using the term market to also mean spread positions, as well as individual markets. However, at any given time, we probably have only about 20 or so significant positions, which account for about 80% of the risk and are uncorrelated to each other. When you are in a significant drawdown, do you do anything differently? Do you reduce your exposure? I don't believe in reducing exposures when you have a losing position. I want to be clear about that. The only pertinent question is whether my being in a losing position is a statistically meaningful indicator of what the subsequent price movement will be, and it is not. For that reason, I don't alter positions because they are losing. Is the implication that whether you are at a new high or you are down 15%,
you will still size positions exactly the same way. Yes, the positions taken and their size would be exactly the same. If a position works poorly, does that cause you to re-examine your strategy? Always. The best discoveries come from positions that don't work out. For example, in 1994, we were long a number of bond markets, and the bond market sold off. We have multiple rules and systems that apply to the bond markets, and at the time they indicated a net long position for each bond market. Afterward, we realized that if we took those same systems and traded them on a spread basis rather than an absolute basis, we could produce a much better risk-slash-return outcome. That change took advantage of the universal truth that you can enhance the return-slash-risk ratio by reducing correlation. If there is a research insight, we change our process. That is an example of how a losing position caused you to change your process. But what about an individual position that is losing money? I understand that you do not get out or reduce a position simply because it is losing money. But what if you change your mind because you realize that you overlooked some factor or didn't give some factor enough weight? No, it doesn't work that way. The way we change our minds is a function of how that information passes through our decision rules. Our decision rules determine the position direction and size under the circumstances. So, your trading process is fully systemized rather than depending on discretionary decisions. It is 99% systemized. These systems evolve, however, as the experience we gain might prompt us to change or add rules. But we don't make discretionary trading decisions on 99% of our individual positions. What if there is some idiosyncratic event that is not incorporated in the system? If it is something like the World Trade Center getting knocked down, then yes, we may exercise a discretionary override. In most cases, such discretion would be a matter of reducing risk exposure. I would say probably less than 1% of trades might be affected by discretion. Is your process totally fundamentally driven, or does the system also include technical factors? There are no technical inputs. So in contrast to the majority of CTAs who use a systematic approach based only on technical factors, primarily or solely price, you also use a systematic approach, but one based only on fundamental factors. That's right. What is the origin of the Bridgewater system? Beginning around 1980, I developed a discipline that whenever I put on a trade, I would write down the reasons on a pad. When I liquidated the trade, I would look at what actually happened and compare it with my reasoning and expectations when I put on the trade. Learning solely from actual experience, however, is inadequate because it takes too much time to get a representative sample to determine whether a decision rule works. I discovered that I could backtest the criteria that I wrote down to get a good perspective of how they would have performed and to refine them. The next step was to define decision rules based on the criteria. I required the decision rules to be logically based and was careful to avoid data mining. That's how the Bridgewater system began and developed in the early years. That same process continued and was improved with the help of many others over the years. Are the individual rules in the compendium of rules that make up the Bridgewater system sometimes revised or do they remain static through time? They are sometimes revised. For example, we used to look at how changes in the oil price affected countries. Between the first oil shock and the second oil shock in the 1970s, crude oil was discovered in the North Sea, and the UK went from being a net importer to a net exporter. 
That event prompted us to change how we configured the decision rule that related to oil prices, so that when the mix of export and import items changed, the rule changed. How were you able to manage such a large amount of money without substantially impeding your performance? In fact, in 2010, you managed to achieve your highest return ever, despite having your largest assets under management ever. Most hedge funds end up having size-related difficulties managing much smaller sums. There are two major differences between us and most other hedge funds. Most hedge funds trade fewer markets, and they trade much more actively. We trade virtually every liquid market in the world, so the amount we have committed to any single market is small relative to our total equity. We also change our positions slowly. As you know, transaction costs are a function of the amount you have to move in a given time frame. Therefore, we have considerably more capacity than managers who trade fewer markets and turn their positions over more quickly. What is your turnover rate per market per year? It depends on what you mean by turnover rate. If you are defining turnover as moving from net long to net short rather than changes in magnitude, then the average time length is about 12 to 18 months. So it is a very slow process. Yes, on average. What about a year like 2008 when markets are witnessing huge price swings in a matter of days? In some years, the turnover rate might be significantly greater than in others, though in 2008 it wasn't much above the average. I believe you are thinking that we would be trading more during a volatile period, but that's not necessarily true. Our trades are driven directly by fundamentals and only indirectly by price to the extent that price changes make a market cheaper or more expensive. I guess then another reason why size may not be much of an issue, as might be surmised based on your huge assets under management, is that you will have a tendency to be a seller when the market is heavily bid and a buyer when it is heavily offered. While that is often the case, it wouldn't be true if the fundamentals were changing faster. We will trade in the opposite direction of the price movement if all the fundamentals remain unchanged. For example, if prices fall and the fundamentals didn't change, we would be buyers. But in practice, the fundamentals are also changing. So the direction of our trades will depend upon both changes in fundamentals and changes in price. But in a period like fall 2008, when markets were witnessing huge swings in a matter of days, largely based on shifts in sentiment rather than changes in fundamentals, I assume you would be more likely to be going in the opposite direction of most traders, whereas most traders would be selling to cut their exposure when a market was breaking sharply, you would be more likely to be a buyer and have lots of liquidity. That's right, as long as there wasn't a bearish shift in the fundamentals as well. Do you ever run into situations where size is an issue? No, because we make sure we do not run into the problem of size being an issue. We know our transaction costs very well, and we know how long it takes for us to get in and out of positions. We will limit our position size to assure that we can get out reasonably quickly and to keep our transaction costs small relative to the expected alpha of the trades in that market. Is there a limitation as to how large you can allow the fund to grow? Yes, we have been closed for several years. But even if you are closed, in a year like 2010, your assets can grow dramatically just from profits. We returned profits. You did quite well in 2008, a difficult year for many hedge funds. What do you attribute your favorable 2008 performance to? Our criteria for trading in a deleveraging had already been established because we had previously studied other leveragings and deleveragings. 
Our analysis included both inflationary deleveraging, such as Germany in the 1920s and Latin America in the 1980s, and deflationary deleveraging, such as the Great Depression of the 1930s and Japan in the 1990s. I had also directly experienced the deleveragings in Latin America and Japan. We felt that if these sort of big events had happened before, they could happen again. We also believed that fully comprehending these events was important to understanding how economies and markets worked. Eight years before the deleveraging that began in 2008, we had developed and implemented what we call the depression gauge. It was designed to indicate when a depression-like environment was in effect based on a number of conditions coinciding, such as interest rates below a certain low level, contradictions in private credit growth, a declining stock market, and widening credit spreads. We knew that when the depression gauge was on, we would have fewer reliable indicators, with some indicators being impacted more than others. For example, if interest rates are near zero, obviously they can no longer be used as a viable indicator. We ran simulations of how our systems would have performed through both inflationary and deflationary deleveragings. If the depression gauge is triggered, our system rules and risk constraints are adjusted to fit the circumstances of a deleveraging period. It was obvious in 2008 that investors were heavily leveraged in carry trade positions. That is, they had bought higher yielding assets funded by shorting lower yielding assets. These positions would have to be unwound when the credit bubble popped. We also could see that the banks had leveraged up rapidly and carelessly. We anticipated they would have large losses because by reviewing their 10Ks, we knew the types of positions they held. By applying indicative pricings, we could mark their balance sheets to the market, which gave us insights into the negative implications for the economy and other markets. In short, by knowing how deleveragings occur, we could monitor the appropriate factors, and by understanding the cause and effect relationships in a deleveraging, it was not difficult to be well positioned in 2008. Besides being well prepared to trade through a deleveraging, we also didn't have the same vulnerability to a year like 2008 as most hedge funds did, simply because the inherent structure of our pure alpha strategy avoids embedded betas. In contrast, most hedge funds mix betas and alpha. The truth about hedge funds is that most of what is packaged as alpha is really beta sold at alpha prices. The average hedge fund is about 70% correlated with stocks. Why are most hedge funds so skewed towards strategies that do well in good times? I think it is human nature for people to choose strategies that worked well during the recent past, which implies a long bias. What is your big-picture perspective of the current difficult economic situation facing the U.S.? Currently, we have a situation where there is a broad global deleveraging, which is negative for growth. Debtor countries that can print money will behave differently from those that can't. Countries that can't print money will experience classic deflationary depressions. Those that can print money, such as the United States, can alleviate the deflation and depression pressures by printing money. However, the effectiveness of quantitative easing will be limited because the owners of the bonds that are purchased by the Fed will use the money to buy something similar. They are not going to use it to buy a house or a car. In addition, fiscal stimulus will be very limited because of the reality of the political situation so it is unlikely that we will have effective monetary policy or effective fiscal policy. That means we will be dependent on income growth, and income growth will be slow, maybe about 2% per year, because income growth is usually dependent on debt growth to finance buying, and I don't expect any significant private credit growth. 
a growth rate of 2% is not sufficient to meaningfully lower the unemployment rate. There is a risk that if the economy deteriorates, we won't have any effective tools for reversing the situation. The current situation is analogous to being in a recession and not being able to lower interest rates. If you had the power to enact policy, is there any policy that could ameliorate the current situation? The best policy would be to spread out the problems over a long period of time so that nominal interest rates stay below nominal growth rates. How do you do that? You do it through a combination of monetary and fiscal policies that produce enough government spending to make up for the reduction in private sector spending to keep the economy from contracting. Avoiding an unmanaged contraction is essential in order to maintain social and political order. At the same time, there needs to be well-thought-out debt restructurings because we can no longer allow our debts to rise faster than our incomes, and we need to gradually lower them. If you do more fiscal spending, it would further increase the debt. We are dependent on foreign capital to buy our debt. Isn't there a risk that increasing the debt further through fiscal stimulus might scare away foreign buyers of U.S. bonds? There sure is. That is why it is very important that the fiscal spending is used for investments that generate returns that are greater than their costs. We can't afford to waste money. Do you mean that spending should be focused on things such as infrastructure? Yes. Put idle people to work on useful projects. It is also socially good. I think it is very bad for society for people to be out of work for very long periods. It is also a false saving. You are paying unemployed workers unemployment insurance and providing other safety net expenditures and generating nothing in return. Whereas if you pay people to build bridges and repair roads, at least you're getting something out of it and it has a multiplier effect. That's right. I don't like the giving money away option because it will devalue the currency and cause investors to run away from U.S. assets. The government should try to make the expenditures a good investment. Do you see a danger in the printing of money leading to inflation risk? Not over the next couple of years. However, longer term, whenever a country has a balance of payments, deficit, and depends on foreign capital, there's a risk that foreign investors will pull back if they fear currency weaknesses as a result of the increased printing of money. The first sign of such a shift is a shortening of the duration of bonds bought by foreigners, which further tightens credit. Such a response occurred in 1931 to 1933 when interest rates went up, even though we were in a deflationary depression. Under those circumstances, the central bank will normally buy more bonds to make up for the difference, which is a monetization of the debt that causes the currency to weaken and a movement of money into real assets and other currencies to escape currency weakness. This phase usually takes a couple of years. Initially, there is a move from deflation to a low level of inflation. For example, when Roosevelt decided to print money and go off the gold standard in 1933, the move depreciated the dollar and just negated the deflation. It didn't bring about a high level of inflation. During such times, both gold and bonds can go up together, which is very different from a normal situation in which higher gold prices imply lower bond prices because of the inflation component. This pattern is exactly what has happened in the current cycle when we have had monetary easing and seen both gold and bonds go up. When I read your description of long-term cycles, it sounded like the U.S. had gone through the fourth of the five phases, a country that still thinks it rich, but isn't, and is now in the fifth stage, a country in decline. Is that an accurate interpretation of your views? I believe so. How long does this cycle typically last? 
The entire cycle takes about 100 to 150 years. The fifth phase of a cycle decline lasts for about 20 years. Assuming the U.S. entered its decline phase around 2008, your cyclical model implies that the U.S. can remain in a general decline out to 2130. That is a pretty pessimistic outlook. Have there been any situations of countries in the decline phase of the long-term cycle where it hasn't been extremely painful? The decline of the British Empire after World War II wasn't cataclysmic because the adjustment process was spread out over many years. So was Japan's deleveraging. Essentially, a country's conditions can stay about the same for a very long period. It doesn't have to be terrible, but it can be terrible if it is badly managed. At Bridgewater, criticism is encouraged, including subordinates criticizing superiors. Do any of your employees ever criticize you? All the time. Can you give me an example? I was in a client meeting with a big European pension fund that was visiting managers in Connecticut. After the meeting, the salesperson criticized me for being inarticulate, running on too long, and adversely affecting the meeting. I asked others who had been at the meeting for their opinions. I was given the grade of F by one of our new analysts who was just one year out of school. I loved it because I knew they were helping me improve and that they understood that that was what they were supposed to be doing. What do you believe is the biggest mistake people make in investing? The biggest mistake investors make is to believe that what happened in the recent past is likely to persist. They assume that something that was a good investment in the recent past is still a good investment. Typically, high past returns simply imply that an asset has become more expensive and is a poorer, not better, investment. The tendency of investors to buy after a price increase for no reasons other than the price increase itself causes prices to overshoot. When investors are making money because they're greedy and fearless, which is typical after a large price rise, doing the opposite is a good idea. Dalio is a strong believer in diversification. In fact, he calls the potential improvement in return-slash-risk through the addition of uncorrelated assets the holy grail of investing. He states that return-slash-risk can be improved by as much as a factor of 5 to 1 if the assets in the portfolio are truly independent. Most people tend to focus on correlation as a primary tool for determining the relative dependence or independence of two assets. Dalio believes that correlation can be a misleading statistic and poorly suited as a tool for constructing a diversified portfolio. The crux of the problem is that correlations between assets are highly variable and critically dependent on prevailing circumstances. For example, typically, gold and bonds are inversely related because inflation, current or expected, will be bullish for gold and negative for bonds, because higher inflation normally implies higher interest rates. In the early phases of a deleveraging cycle, however, both gold and bonds can move higher together, as aggressive monetary easing will reduce interest rates, i.e. increase bond prices, while at the same time enhancing longer-term concerns over currency depreciation, which will increase gold prices. In this type of environment, gold and bonds can be positively correlated, which is exactly opposite their normal relationship. Instead of using correlation as a measure of dependence between positions, Dalio focuses on the underlying drivers that are expected to affect those positions. Drivers are the cause. Correlations are the consequence. In order to ensure a diversified portfolio, it is necessary to select assets that have different drivers. By determining the future drivers that are likely to impact each market, 
a forward-looking approach. Dalio can more accurately assess which positions are likely to move in the same direction or inversely. For example, anticipate when gold and bonds are likely to move in the same direction and when they are likely to move in opposite directions. In contrast, making decisions based on correlation, which is backward-looking, can lead to faulty decisions in forming portfolios. Dalio constructs portfolios so that the different positions have different drivers rather than simply being uncorrelated. Bridgewater makes heavy use of spread positions to create holdings that have different drivers. For example, even though different world bond markets may be exposed to similar drivers, various spread positions between those bonds can have different drivers. The use of spread positions is critical in mitigating the problem of highly synchronous behavior between positions in the portfolio in an investment environment that is characterized by shifts between risk-on and risk-off, a situation where a broad range of markets move in tandem in response to whether investors are risk-averse or risk-seeking. Markets behave differently in different environments. The behavior of markets in deleveragings is very different from their responses in recessions. Any fundamental model that assumes static relationships between markets and economic variables will be flawed because those relationships can change dramatically in different market situations. For example, the same government actions that might lead to a sustained rebound in a recession might have little impact on a deleveraging. Dalio contends that any valid fundamental approach must be broad enough in scope, both temporal and geographical, to encompass all different environments. He believes such a timeless and universal approach is the only way to build a fundamental model that is sufficiently robust to represent the real world. Investors are often baffled when markets respond to news events in counterintuitive fashion. Dalio vividly recalls these experiences when seemingly very bearish events, such as the United States coming off the gold standard in 1971 and the Mexican default in 1982, were to his great surprise followed by major market rallies. In part, this seemingly paradoxical market behavior can be explained by the fact that markets often anticipate the news. The other part of the explanation is that bearish events can trigger new events with bullish consequences. For example, developments that have very negative implications for the economy and investor sentiment can prompt central bank countermeasures that lead to rallies. If there is a single essential lesson to learn from Dalio, it is that mistakes provide the path to improvement and ultimate success. Each mistake offers an opportunity to learn from the error and to modify one's approach based on this new information. Whenever you make a significant mistake in trading, write it down, both to reinforce the lesson and to serve as a future reminder. Then change your trading process based on this new experience. In this way, mistakes can become the essential ingredient for continual improvement as a trader, and for that matter, any other endeavor. Addendum. Ray Dalio's Big Picture View. Dalio's big-picture perspective applies not only to temporal and geographical breadth, but also to viewing the markets and economies through the lens of long-term cycles and trends. Dalio's template for understanding economies consists of superimposing three forces that together explain the position and direction of any economy. 1. Productivity growth. Real per capita GDP in the United States has increased at an average rate of near 2% over the past 100 years, as a result of productivity gains, but has fluctuated widely around this trend based on the prevailing long-term and business cycles. 2. Long-term credit expansion deleveraging cycle 
Initially, the availability of credit expands spending beyond income levels, as Dalio explains. This process is self-reinforcing because rising spending generates rising incomes and rising net worths, which raise borrowers' capacity to borrow, which allows more buying and spending. The upwave in the cycle typically goes on for decades, with variations in it primarily due to central banks tightening and easing credit, which makes business cycles. Although self-reinforcing, the credit expansion phase ultimately reaches a point where it can no longer be extended. Dalio describes this transition in the credit cycle as follows. It can't go on forever. Eventually, the debt service payments become equal to or larger than the amount we can borrow, and the spending must decline. When promises to deliver money, debt, can't raise any more relative to the money and credit coming in, the process works in reverse and we have deleveragings. Since borrowing is simply a way of pulling spending forward, the person spending $110,000 per year and earning $100,000 per year has to cut his spending to $90,000 for as many years as he spent $110,000, all else being equal. In deleveragings, rather than debts rising relative to money as they do in upwaves, the reverse is true. As the money coming into debtors via incomes and borrowings is not enough to meet debtors' obligations, assets need to be sold and spending needs to be cut in order to raise cash. This leads asset values to fall, which reduces the value of collateral and in turn reduces incomes. Because of both lower collateral values and lower incomes, borrowers' creditworthiness is reduced, so they justifiably get less credit, and so it continues in a self-reinforcing manner. Dalio emphasizes that deleveragings are very different from recessions. Unlike in recessions, when cutting interest rates and creating more money can rectify this imbalance, in deleveraging's monetary policy is ineffective in creating credit. In other words, in recessions, when monetary policy is effective, the imbalance between the amount of money and the need for it to service debt can be rectified because interest rates can be cut enough to 1. ease debt service burdens, 2. stimulate economic activity because monthly debt service payments are high relative to incomes, and 3. produce a positive wealth effect. However, in deleveragings, this can't happen. In deflationary depressions, deleveragings, monetary policy is typically ineffective in creating credit because interest rates hit 0% and can't be lowered further. So other, less effective ways of increasing money are followed. Credit growth is difficult to stimulate because borrowers remain over-indebted, making sensible lending impossible. In inflationary deleveragings, Monetary policy is ineffective in creating credit because increased money growth goes into other currencies, and inflation hedge assets become investors' fear that their lending will be paid back with money of depreciated value. 3. Business Cycle The business cycle refers to fluctuations in economic activity. Dalio explains that, in the business cycle, the availability and cost of credit are driven by central bankers, while in the long-wave cycle, the availability and cost of credit are driven by factors that are largely beyond central banks' control. In the standard business cycle, the central bank can boost a lagging economy by lowering interest rates. In the deleveraging phase of the long-wave cycle, central banks can't exert any influence by lowering rates because rates are already at or near zero. It should now be clear why Dalio believes that any fundamental market analysis based solely on the entire post-World War II period in the United States is entirely inadequate. Although encompassing nearly 70 years, 
This period in the United States does not contain any deleveragings other than the current one that began in 2008. And, as explained, economies and markets behave very differently in deleveragings than in standard recessions. By focusing more broadly through both time and geography, Dalio is able to draw upon past instances that are comparable to the current situation, e.g. Great Depression, post-bubble Japan, Latin American defaults. In regard to the cycles that affect individual countries, Dalio takes an even broader perspective, measured in centuries, which he calls appropriately enough the really big picture. Dalio believes that all countries move through a five-phase cycle. Stage 1. Countries are poor and think that they are poor. Stage 2. Countries are getting rich quickly, but still think they are poor. Stage 3. Countries are rich and think of themselves as rich. Stage 4. Countries become poorer and still think of themselves as rich. Stage 5. Countries go through deleveraging and relative decline, which they are slow to accept. This is how Dalio describes countries in stage 4. This is the leveraging up phase, i.e. debts rise relative to incomes until they can't anymore. Because spending continues to be strong, they continue to appear rich, even though their balance sheets deteriorate. The reduced level of efficient investments in infrastructure, capital goods, and R&D slow their productivity gains. Their cities and infrastructures become older and less efficient than those in the two earlier stages. Their balance of payments positions deteriorate, reflecting their reduced competitiveness. They increasingly rely on their reputations rather than on their competitiveness to fund their deficits. They typically spend a lot of money on the military at this stage, sometimes very large amounts because of wars in order to protect their global interests. Often, though not always, at the advanced stages of this phase, countries run twin deficits, i.e. both balance of payments and government deficits. In the last few years of this stage, frequently bubbles occur. These bubbles emerge because investors, businessmen, financial intermediaries, individuals, and policymakers tend to assume that the future will be like the past, so they bet heavily on the trends continuing. They mistakenly believe that investments that have gone up a lot are good rather than expensive, so they borrow money to buy them, which drives up their prices more and reinforces this bubble process. Bubbles burst when the income growth and investment returns inevitably fall short of the levels required to service these debts. The financial losses that result from the bubble bursting contribute to the country's economic decline, whether due to wars or bubbles or both. What typifies this stage is an accumulation of debt that can't be paid back in non-depreciated money, which leads to the next stage. And stage five. After bubbles burst and when deleveragings occur, private debt growth, private sector spending, asset values, and net worths decline in a self-reinforcing negative cycle. To compensate government debt growth, government deficits, and central bank printing of money typically increase. In this way, their central banks and central governments cut real interest rates and increase nominal GDP growth so that it is comfortably above nominal interest rates in order to ease debt burdens. As a result of these low real interest rates, weak currencies, and poor economic conditions, their debt and equity assets are poor performing and increasingly these countries have to compete with less expensive countries that are in the earlier stages of development. Their currencies depreciate 
and they like it. As an extension of these economic and financial trends, countries in this stage see their power in the world decline. The foregoing Stage 4 and Stage 5 profiles sound like uncomfortably close descriptions of the United States. Stage 5, current situation. Stage 4, preceding decades, don't they? Chapter 3 Larry Benedict, Beyond Three Strikes The road to success is often paved with failure. Larry Benedict did two things consistently during his early career lose money in trading, and get fired. The two often, but not always, related. Despite a complete lack of evidence that he possessed any trading skill, Benedict persisted in his quest to become a successful trader, somehow managing to find another trading job after each failure. Luckily for Benedict, there is no three-strikes-and-you're-out rule in pursuing a career. Ultimately, Benedict proved to be as consistent in success as he was in failure. Benedict's transition point came in 1989 when he was hired by Spear, Leeds, and Kellogg, SLK, to be an options specialist in the XMI Index on the American Stock Exchange. As a specialist, Benedict gained some much-needed experience and developed a feel for the markets. When volume in the XMI started to dry up three years later, Benedict became an off-the-floor index derivatives trader for SLK. In 1993, Benedict's success as a trader led to his being named as the special limited partner for SLK's newly created proprietary trading department. After Goldman Sachs purchased SLK in 2000, Benedict left to start his own trading firm, Banyan Equity Management. A trading friend describes Benedict's skill in the market as follows. He has it. It's hard to describe it. Why does Ichiro Suzuki repeatedly hit 350? I don't know. Benedict is like Rain Man in that office, but get him out of the office and he can't even find his keys. In the office, he's like a friggin' maestro. Benedict is a very active short-term trader. He averages about 100 to 200 trades a day. Several years ago, the pace was even more frenetic, closer to 500 trades per day. His core market is the S&P 500. He also trades foreign equity indexes, such as the DAX, Hang Seng, and Nikkei, domestic and foreign interest rate markets, major currencies, and key commodity markets such as crude oil and gold. The S&P 500 is the hub, and Benedict pays a lot of attention to how the other major markets are correlating, either directly or inversely, with the S&P 500. Benedict is essentially a mean reversion trader. That is, he will be a seller in short-term upswings and a buyer in short-term declines. The entry level of his trades will be determined by the prevailing volatility of the market, his directional bias, if any, and changes in correlations between the markets he trades. Benedict will also trade longs in one market versus shorts in a positively correlated market, or longs in an inversely correlated market, if he thinks the short-term price relationship is overextended. Benedict maintains the risk balance of a constantly changing portfolio, containing both directly and inversely correlated positions in his head. A former intern commented, The things Benedict does mentally other people need computers to do. Risk management dominates Benedict's approach. To say he is cautious is an understatement. If his losses in any month approach 2.5%, Benedict will liquidate the entire portfolio and start with a clean slate the next day, trading at a reduced position size. 
Typically, after a 2.0% to 2.5% decline, he will cut his unit size to one-half or less the normal level. Benedict will continue to trade at a smaller size until he starts making money again. The rapidity with which Benedict cuts his exposure explains why he has never had a large monthly loss. His worst month in 13 years of trading, seven years in his fund, and six years previously in a managed account and proprietary account, was a moderate 3.5% loss. David Horowitz, a former trader and the chief operating officer for Banyan, describes Benedict as follows. Larry is essentially a risk manager. It's not about making a lot of money. Of course, it's important to have return. But for Larry, it's more important to not lose money. He knows that if he can manage the risk, he will make money. He understands when he is wrong and knows when he has to get out. Fundamental managers say, I'm going to buy this stock for the next six months because I think this will happen. Technical managers say, if the stock goes here, I will buy, and if it goes here, I will sell. Larry doesn't fit into either group. Larry has spent so much time in front of the screens watching these markets trade versus each other that he has a sense of when to buy and sell. Larry lets the market dictate to him what he should do, which is very different from how most managers approach trading. After joining Spear Leeds in 1990, Benedict was net profitable for 20 consecutive years. The streak, however, ended in 2011, just barely, when his fund lost 0.6%. Since its inception in 2004, Benedict's fund has realized an average annualized compounded net return of 11.5%, 19.3% gross. If this return does not sound sufficiently impressive, keep in mind that it was achieved with an extremely low annualized volatility of 5.8%, and even more impressively, a maximum drawdown of less than 5%. Benedict's return-slash-risk numbers are exemplary. His sharp ratio is very high at 1.5. The sharp ratio, however, understates Benedict's performance because this statistic does not distinguish between upside and downside volatility. And in Benedict's case, most of the limited volatility is on the upside. Benedict's gain-to-pain ratio is an extremely high 3.4. Benedict won't allow family or friends to invest in his fund, as one of his friends since childhood told me. Larry will never take any of investor money from friends or family. I tried to convince him to take money from me, but he wouldn't do it. When I was managing a multi-strategy fund of funds, he wouldn't even let the firm invest because I was the one directing the investment. He doesn't want to bear the responsibility. After 2008, when his parents had lost a lot of money in their conventional investments, just like most other investors, while his fund was up 14%, I asked him, Larry, don't you now regret that you didn't let your parents and friends invest with you? He answered, No, that doesn't change anything. It would just add another layer of distraction. I would rather write my parents a check if they needed the money than ever have them in the fund. I visited Benedict at his offices in Boca Raton, Florida. Although there is ample space in their office complex, Benedict and his entire team are crowded together in a single room. Because of the confined quarters, and to avoid continuous distractions, we conducted the interview in an overly spacious but entirely unassuming conference room. Assistants would periodically come in to advise Benedict of market price moves and to get his trading instructions. I thought it odd that the conference room was about five times larger than might ever be needed, whereas the trading room was cramped. John Apperson, a managing director at Centennial Partners and an investor in Banyan, who had brought Benedict to my attention, 
explained this oddity in a phone conversation several months later. A number of years ago, when Banyan expanded their operation a bit with the growth of assets, they were all jammed together in that little room you saw. They decided to build out a new trading room in a larger space. The first day after they had relocated, Larry had a bad trading day. He said, that's it, rip it out, we are moving back. What would appear to most of us as a much less comfortable work environment is not that way for Larry. Maybe he is more comfortable there because he can reach all his employees. Benedict is a happily transplanted New Yorker who lives in Florida with his wife, Lisa, and three sons. He loves the casual Florida lifestyle and dresses the part. Even though Benedict had institutional investors visiting his offices the day I interviewed him, he was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Maybe they were his dress shorts. Although the room was surprisingly chilly, and I'm someone who likes air conditioning set to cold temperatures, Benedict, who was more appropriately dressed for a heat wave, seemed perfectly comfortable. Benedict was downright jovial in our conversation, but he was surprisingly candid about making me aware of the darker side of his temperament. In the course of our interview, Benedict enlisted several witnesses, both in person and by phone, to testify to his predilection to anger outbursts, a character trait I would not have guessed he had without his assistance. I later learned that his staff stocks ample inventories of phones, cell phones, and especially keyboards, items that are particularly vulnerable targets of Benedict's periodic temper flares. How would you describe your trading approach? I'm probably different from any of the other traders you'll interview. If you come into my office, you'll see that I don't look at charts at all during the trading day. I'm just tape reading. And you don't use fundamentals either? I understand the fundamentals, but they don't come into play in my short-duration trading. You certainly are different. I have interviewed fundamental traders who don't look at charts, but you are definitely the first discretionary technical trader that I've interviewed who doesn't use charts. So right away we can say you are in a category of one. I sort of have the chart in my head. I look at prices and markets versus other markets. Our trade durations are very short, anywhere from a few seconds to a day or two. What markets are you trading? My main market is S&P futures which I trade both on its own and versus other highly liquid futures markets such as the euro, yen, T-notes, gold, and crude oil. How did you get started in trading? When I was a senior at Syracuse University, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I was dating a girl whose father was a soybean trader on the Chicago Board of Trade. On one of my vacations, he took me to the trading floor. That was my first exposure to the futures markets. Did you know anything about futures? Zero. I didn't even know anybody who traded or was even in the business. What was your impression when you went on the floor? It was the most awesome thing I ever saw. I thought, this is what I gotta do. I loved that it was aggressive and competitive. When I was growing up, I played a lot of sports, and I was ultra-competitive. Did you try to get a job on the floor after you graduated? A friend of my aunt's family was a market maker in the floor of the CBOE and helped me get a job as a clerk. At the time, I thought $5,000 was a lot of money. The guy I was working for had $15 million in his account. And on my first day on the job, I remember walking a $1 million check over to Goldman Sachs. The clerk that I was replacing trained me for a day. He told me, listen, you're going to get fired every day. Just come back the next day. I'm 21 years old in a new city where I don't know anyone, and I'm being told that I will be fired every day. It was a bit unsettling. 
On the first day, I was thrown into the fire. I knew absolutely nothing. My boss was hand-signaling me from the pit. I didn't know the hand signals yet. I had to learn them from a sheet they handed you. We got back to the office after the first day of work, and he says, my account is off by 20 lots. Get the hell out of my office and don't come back. You're fired. What did you do? I came back into the office the next morning, tail between my legs, and sat down at the desk. He didn't say anything, and he acted as if everything was normal. And then two days later, he says, you don't know what you're doing. You're fired. During those first few days, did you think maybe you didn't want to do this? It sounds like a miserable job. <laughs> it was miserable. Did things get any better? No, it was definitely a bad period of time. He really needed an experienced clerk. After six months, we reached a mutual decision that I should leave. I took an easier job as a runner on the floor. After working for about a year as a runner, I got a trading position for a firm run by Steve Fawcett, that famous world adventurer. The deal was that you would put up $10,000 of your own money, and the firm supplemented it with 15000 You kept all the profits on your own portion of the funds and 60% of the profits on the firm's capital. The firm supplied you with an exchange seat for which you paid a monthly rental fee. What had you learned that made you think you could make money as a trader? Not much. To be frank, I didn't have a handle on what to do. I was just making bets. I just thought I could do it. What's funny is that I remember calling my mom and saying, my friend Andy is making a fortune and I can't seem to make a dime. She said, oh, then just do what he does. What exchange were you trading on? I was originally on the CBOE trading options on stocks such as Chrysler and Revlon. Then they moved me over to the New York Stock Exchange to trade the index, the NYA, which is where I was at the time of the 1987 crash. In 1988, I went to the Amex to trade the XMI, the major market index, which is an index based on 20 of blue-chip stocks. Did you trade on the day of the crash? Yes, I came in short. Wow, that's great. No, I came in short straddles. I was short 20 calls and 20 puts. Oh, my God, that drastically changes the picture. What was ironic about that day is that not only did the puts skyrocket as the market crashed, but the calls also went up because volatility exploded. So I was losing money on both sides of the trade. The account went from somewhere around 25000 to a deficit in a matter of hours. I was frozen. I called Steve Fawcett to ask him what I should do. He said, stay on the bid, you'll get it. The market just kept falling, and I panicked and bought back my puts. I kept the calls. It didn't make sense to me that the calls should be way up when the Dow was down 500 points. I covered the calls a couple of days later. Where was the account when you covered the puts? It was probably in deficit around $10,000. This was not a big amount, but if you lose all your money, it doesn't make a difference if it's $20,000 or $1 million. I thought I was done. After I got out of my puts, I left the floor. I remember walking around Wall Street in a daze. There was a reporter from one of the local TV stations who asked me, can you give us a comment? All I could say was, this is unbelievable. That quote actually made it onto TV. Yes, I remember the day well. Even 2008 paled by comparison because in 1987, virtually the entire move happened in one day. One of my most important experiences was being on the floor on the day of the 1987 crash. 
Seeing that day taught me that anything can happen. How did it feel when you got out of the position? It felt good. (laughs) I assume you would have lost more if you stayed with the position. A lot more. The put options went up so much by the end of the day that I probably would have been down several hundred thousand dollars if I had stayed with the position. They crushed the market on the close, and the volatility went insane. The puts that I covered at 20 probably went as high as 200. Since you had taken the account into a deficit, you obviously couldn't trade. What happened next? The firm had a standard policy of replenishing traders' accounts with $25,000 if you blew through the first 25000 You would become a prop trader for the firm. It seems like an odd structure. What was the logic of the firm giving traders additional money after they lost the initial stake? They felt that there was a good probability you would chew through the initial capital, which was partly your own money because of the learning curve. They figured you would have a better chance once you had the experience. Also, they were earning commissions off your trades, so if you just broke even, they would do quite well. It was in their interest to try to keep you trading. How did you do with the second 25000 I floundered and had gone through part of that capital as well when a friend of mine, who was a market maker, approached me with an offer to trade a $50,000 prop account for him and another guy. The deal was that they would allow me to lose $30,000 before pulling the plug on the account. I wasn't doing well with the faucet account, so I made the switch. Since you hadn't made any money, on what basis was he offering you the account? He saw me trade in the pit and I guess he thought I could make money. I don't know why he thought that, but he did. I also think he wanted to give me a shot. What happened was that after I had been trading the account for about one month, I lost $16,000. I called him that night to let him know about the loss I had taken. It was the most difficult call I ever had to make because he was a friend of mine, and he had given me an opportunity. He told me to take some time off to clear my head, After I came back, though, he told me they had decided to terminate the account. I have to ask you this. You got fired from your first job. Then you got a trading job and blew through the money. They gave you more money, and you blew through most of that. Then a friend gave you a stake, and you lost money so quickly that he pulled the plug before you reached your cutoff point. As I am reciting this litany, Benedict's laughter builds steadily. Didn't you at some point say to yourself, Maybe I'm not cut out to be a trader. No, (laughs) I never gave up. I know you never gave up, but not to be cruel, on what basis did you have any confidence? I just wanted to learn how to do it and win. I saw all these other guys making money, and I thought if they could do it, I could do it. But up to this point, I had no strategy and no discipline. I was, however, gaining experience. All the mistakes I was making along the way, and there were many, were providing experience which was critical. The lessons I learned from those early failures helped me become successful. What did you do next? The pit was like a fraternity. One of the other traders in the pit who worked for Spear Leads offered me a job as a specialist. I was a specialist for the XMI calls. I owe a lot of my success to Spear Leads. They gave me stability. Larry Lavecchio, who I worked for at Spear Leads, taught me discipline. I watched how he traded, the risk he took, and how he protected the capital. Were you just making the market in the XMI calls, or were you also trading a proprietary account? Both. 
As the specialist, you provide liquidity. You also have an inherent advantage in trading because you see the order book. When you fill an order, how do you lay off the risk? If I was a seller of calls, I would buy futures against it. I would keep the book close to delta neutral. So you were essentially making the bid-ask spread and laying off the risk. Yes, but as a specialist, you also have to anticipate. If the market is strong and you know you will have call buyers all day, you buy futures ahead of that. In other words, you anticipate your hedge needs and adjust your delta. That process was part of developing a feel for the market, which I never had in all those years of just knocking around. How did you develop that feel? I started paying attention to the intermarket price relationships. For example, if the S&P was moving in an inverse lockstep to the bonds, and bonds were down for the day, but the S&P was not responding on the upside, it would tell me I should sell the S&P. It's funny, now crude and the S&P are moving up and down together. That is something new. Before, we never even looked at crude. One of the firm's employees comes into the conference room to discuss a position with Benedict. Benedict gives him some instructions and then continues our conversation. Sorry about that. I 